Father, thank you for just this time um, that we can study your word. Thank you for uh, this group and, and everyone who's here, and uh, even just your faithfulness and your goodness to us over this school year. Um, I know not everyone's done yet, but uh, or some people have already finished, Lord, but um, yeah, we just think back and uh, remember your faithfulness, and uh, we give thanks for the ways that you have grown us. And uh, as we look into this passage and just what it means to walk by the Spirit, uh, we want to continue to depend on you um, for the Christian life and for growth and for any change or good that comes from our lives, any fruit that we get to see. We want to uh, just know that it comes from you, and we want to continue to depend on you. Um, and so teach us, Lord, through your word and through this passage. Um, we want to commit our time to you. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, turn in your Bibles to Galatians 5, and we're going to be in verses 16 to 26. Uh, we are reaching the home stretch of our study in Galatians. After tonight, we have just chapter 6 left and just a couple more messages. So we're almost there. Um, and if you've been with us, hopefully by now you can tell me what the context or the occasion of Galatians is. Um, but in case you forgot, Paul's main point or his central message in this book of Galatians is that the one and only true and saving gospel is that you are saved by faith alone, by grace alone, in Christ alone. Right? And uh, contrary to the false teaching of these Judaizers who had come in, Paul says that you don't need to add other things. Right? You don't need to add circumcision or the law or good works on top of that in order to be a real Christian, like the false teachers were saying. In fact, to try to do so would, to be, to, uh, would be to depart from the gospel entirely. Right? To try to do so would be no gospel at all, and you'd be trying to make the law do something that's impossible, right? to save you or to make you righteous. You'd be trying to make it do something that it was never intended to do. And that was mostly chapters 1 to 4, where Paul is explaining and defending the gospel. And for the rest of the letter, chapters 5 and 6, Paul transitions to application. Okay, so not just telling us what the gospel is and what uh, justification is, but also how the gospel changes how we live, um, our sanctification. And a couple weeks ago, I thought Christian did a really good job with that first part of chapter 5, just helping us understand what freedom is, right, that we enjoy as believers. Um, that as believers, we've been set free from the demands of the law, right, or this legalism. And yet, that freedom doesn't mean that you just do whatever you want, right? It doesn't mean that you just have license or uh, you can just serve your own desires, right? Or the, the word for that is antinomianism. Um, and that's often how the world defines freedom, right? I can just do whatever I want. Um, the way that Paul puts it in verse 13 is he says, don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But here's how you use it. He says, but through love, serve one another. So not the slavery of legalism, right, which Paul was preaching against, but also not the other extreme of this unrestrained like licentiousness, but the way of love. And in verse 14, Paul says that's really what the entire law is all about in the first place. Well, as we continue in our passage tonight, we're going to see that similar idea. Right? Not legalism, not antinomianism or, or licentiousness, um, but uh, this better way. And instead of focusing on the freedom that we enjoy, which he did last time, Paul is going to focus on the Holy Spirit's work in the life of a believer. When you think about it, freedom is great, right? And in this ideal world, uh, 
people would use their freedom for good. People would use their freedom to love others rather than to love themselves. But the question is, how do we actually get there? Like, how do we actually get to the point where we use our freedom to love, like Paul says? Or even more simply, how do people actually change? Like, how do we actually want to desire that? See, one of the underlying beliefs or one of the underlying assumptions between both legalism and antinomianism is that people cannot change. That's like one of the fundamental assumptions, that people don't change. And that's why you need external rules and regulations to tell people what to do. Or on the other hand, people don't change, and so they'll just inevitably do what they want. Right? They just fulfill their own desires. And here in our passage, Paul says, no, that's not true. That people can change. They can genuinely change. And it's not because we ourselves have done anything about it, but it's because God has done something about it. Namely, he's given Christians his Holy Spirit. That's the difference. And the Holy Spirit indwells our hearts and changes us from the inside out. And so again, not this legalism, like all these rules, not do whatever you want, but this better way, this life that is led by the Spirit, a life that is walking by the Spirit. And that's the big idea of our passage. If you look in it, in our passage, Paul restates that in a few different ways. So verse 16, he says, walk by the Spirit. Uh, Verse 18, he says, if you are led by the Spirit. Verse 25, he says, live by the Spirit. Let us also keep in step with the Spirit. And so different ways of saying the same thing, right? This life that is walking or led by the Spirit. Uh, And now the obvious follow-up question to that is, what does that mean? Like, what does it mean to walk by the Spirit? Right? I think it seems kind of vague, um, a little abstract. And I, I think that's often the case when we talk about the Holy Spirit. Uh, I was trying to come up with a definition, and I feel like I just kind of ended up using some of the same words that Paul uses here. Um, but I think kind of generally, walking by the Spirit communicates these ideas of trust, uh, of dependence, um, of where your power comes from, your power from the Spirit, right? this submission um, to the Spirit's way and rule in your life. Um, I think one helpful way that I heard verse 18, where Paul says, if you're led by the Spirit, one helpful way I heard that explained is, it's not so much like follow the leader, right? Like hope you keep up with the Spirit who's guiding you, um, but like this train that is led by the caboose, the train that's led by the engine, the source of power that's leading you and propelling you. And so those are some ideas. I, I think that Paul is trying to capture with that phrase, walking by the Spirit, um, but, but I think in our passage, he's not trying to give us like this nice, concise definition, which is maybe what we want. Rather, I think he helps us to understand this first by just understanding the significance of the Spirit in relation to the Old Testament, to the law, um, to the context of the rest of Galatians, but also by giving us a picture of what life in the Spirit looks like. So I think he wants to show us and not so much tell us. Uh, and so real quick, just before we jump into our passage, our, our, our outline is going to be that second one, right? that picture of what life in the Spirit looks like. Um, I do want to help you understand just the theological, theological significance of the Spirit for us as believers. Because um, I know that when we talk about the Holy Spirit in our lives, um, oftentimes we're talking about our present experience. Right? We're talking about like everyday life, how the Spirit is working in our hearts personally, individually, right now in the Christian life. Um, And that is how the passage talks about it. But I do want to show you how the Spirit is also part of this bigger story, um, part of 
God's bigger work in Scripture. Um, and so I want to rewind to the past a little bit, and I want to help us see how the Spirit is this fulfillment of something that God promised long ago. See, one of the things that had set God's people, Israel, apart was that God gave them the law. Right? And, and the law was one of the tangible markers of their identification as God's people. Um, and so because of that, it was something that was incredibly important to them. Uh, in fact, it was something that they, they found a lot of pride in. Right? And we see that all throughout Galatians. Um, the Judaizers, are, they keep pounding the law. Right? Their message is that you have to add the law, circumcision, these rituals, in addition to faith in Jesus Christ to be part of the people of God. Because that's what uh, identifies you as, as part of God's people. Well, in Galatians, if you think back to chapter 3, what did Paul teach us about the law? He said that the law was never intended to save. Remember, the law was intended to serve as this temporary guardian, right, to, to restrain evil, to, to be a guardian over us until Christ came. Um, the law was to reflect to us the character of God. And the law was to reveal our own sinfulness and our inability to keep it. In other words, the law wasn't meant to save, but it was meant to show us our need for a Savior. We're meant to realize that an external law was never intended to solve an internal problem, our sinful hearts. And so here's where the Holy Spirit comes in. In Ezekiel 36, um, 26 to 27, God, in the Old Testament, God makes this amazing promise that in the future, he would give his people a new heart and a new spirit. And he says in that passage, he says, I will remove your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. I will place my spirit within you and cause you to follow my statutes and observe my ordinances. Right? There will be a day when I give you my spirit and you will be able to obey me from the heart. And the Spirit given to every believer, the Holy Spirit given to all of us, is the fulfillment of that promise. The Spirit, not the law, is the true mark of identification with God's people. And, and like that promise says, if you are a Christian, you have been given the desire and the ability by the Spirit living in you to obey God in a way that transcends what God's people in the Old Testament, under the Old Covenant, uh, Old Covenant law, never were able to do. And so, like, I, I want us to understand that, right? That bigger, like, context or story, because hopefully that makes this a little less vague and abstract for you guys. Like, this is what has objectively happened to you as a believer. And so when Paul's command here is to, to walk by the Spirit, to be led by the Spirit, to live and to keep in step with the Spirit, all of that is grounded in this reality. That you have the Spirit who changes you who actually gives you the ability to obey. And that is such a stark contrast to what Paul has talked about in Galatians. Paul says, now live out of that reality in dependence and confidence. And so with all of that in mind, I want to read our passage. Um, and so this is the picture, right? A picture of what walking by the Spirit looks like. So Galatians 5, verses 16 to 26. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by, by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, 
idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. We'll take this in three parts. Uh, three kind of pictures of what life in the Spirit looks like. First one is this. Life in the Spirit is struggle against the flesh. It's struggle against the flesh. Now, hopefully, as we are reading that, that contrast was obvious to you guys. Right? Paul puts it pretty clearly for us in verse 17. He says, For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Um, now, what does Paul mean there by the word flesh? Uh, if you read throughout the Bible, it's used in a number of ways. For example, sometimes it's talking about all of humanity. Other times it's talking about our physical bodies. Uh, but the primary way that Paul uses it, especially in the New Testament, is flesh describes indwelling sin. It describes our sinful natures. He's not talking about so much like physical versus spiritual or like material versus immaterial. He's talking about the parts of us whose desires are opposed to the Holy Spirit's desire for holiness, right? Our indwelling sin, our sinful nature. And if you are a Christian, like we said, the, the Spirit now indwells your hearts, right? He takes residence in your hearts. But as long as you are still in this physical body, in this fallen exist, existence, you will still experience and you will still struggle against the desires of the flesh. And I think we all understand this, right? I don't think we would deny this. Um, for example, you genuinely desire holiness. You genuinely want to love God with all your heart, and yet you feel the tug of the world, right? You, you, uh, the things of your, your old way of life, they still are tempting and alluring to you sometimes. Or maybe you genuinely do want to to love others, to serve others sacrificially with a good heart. And yet, even when you do that, you still feel that tinge of like impurity or like self-righteousness. You're not sure if your motives are totally right. I mean, we all experience this, right? That, that struggle or that uh, the flesh is there, right? We, we know it's there. And in verse 19, Paul helps us to better un understand what this looks like. Um, if, if verses 16 to 18 are about desires, right, which are hidden in our hearts, then here's what it looks like. He says, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. Um, on your notes, you can kind of see how commentators have generally categorized each of these words in this list. Uh, but I think we should understand that Paul is not trying to be exhaustive here. That's why he says at the end, things like these. Um, I, I think Paul is trying to make us feel something. That the cumulative effect of all of these examples, all of these words, should make us realize that this is a picture of the desires of the flesh gone wild. Right? If we just like do whatever we want, if we just are controlled by the flesh, this is what it looks like. Like This is the kind of, of wreckage that results. And Paul even says like this should be evident 
right? It should be obvious, uh, maybe even to the average person or even the non-believer, that these things are not good. Like, these things are wrong. They're destructive. They are messed up. I want you to notice that this list includes things that might describe your like typical non-religious pagan. So like this is drunkenness, um, orgies, but also it could describe a religious person, like idolatry, sorcery. Um, he has attitudes here, jealousy, envy, as well as actions, fits of anger. Uh, this list is broad, so sexual immorality is a very broad term, and yet also specific at times. And so I, I think he's trying to make us feel something, the cumulative effect of all of these examples of the flesh. And here's the warning at the end of verse 21. Paul says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So what is Paul saying there? He says, if this is the picture of your life, if this is what characterizes your life, then you have serious reason to honestly reconsider whether or not your faith is genuine. Now, to be clear, he's not saying that you can never sin. He's not saying that you can never fall short. I mean, we all do. But he is saying that if the pattern of your life is characterized by this unrepentant, by this continual giving into, living according to the desires of the flesh, you just do whatever you want, God's word in this verse, it says that you are in grave danger. That you need to think long and hard about what you believe and who you're living for. And realize these hard sayings are God's kindness to you. right? Verses like this are meant to wake you up from your slumber if this is the way that you're living. Well, if that's a picture of someone who is not saved, right? They just their life is characterized by this unrepentant, continual giving into the flesh, then what's the opposite of that? What's the picture of someone who is saved? And this is important. I want you to see this. It's not that I only do good, right? It's not even that I mostly do good things or that I never sin. The picture of someone who is walking by the Spirit is not that they are perfect, but what? That they struggle, right? That they struggle. That each day is this battle between the desires of the Spirit and the desires of the flesh. J.C. Ryle, he put it like this. He said, the child of God has two great marks about him, his inner peace and his inner warfare. So he says, inner peace, knowing that our sins are forgiven, that we are in right standing before God because of the gospel, but also inner warfare right? because of this battle that is raging on that's Paul, that Paul is talking about. In fact, I think Ryle's onto something. He says, we should be concerned if there is no inner warfare against sin going on. He says, let us settle in our minds that the Christian fight is a good fight. Really good, truly good, emphatically good. The battle against sin and the flesh is frustrating, and we should be frustrated by it. But also, it is evidence of the Spirit's work in your life. Is there struggle going on in your life? Well, maybe some of you need to hear that tonight because you look around, and it might seem like people at church or people at AACF, like everyone else, it seems like they have it all together. It seems like they never struggle with anything. And if, if they do, like it's just like suffering, right? It's like oh, hard circumstances, but never personal sin. And while you're here, you know you're on sin, and you're like dealing with the same thing over and over again. Well, first off, I think we need to realize that oftentimes in most relationships, you're probably just seeing the surface, right? So you don't see everything going on. I think we have to realize that. But also, I think we probably do 
need to recalibrate our understanding and our expectation of the Christian life. Like, I think we have overvalued things like giftedness and ability and personality and knowledge rather than this humble recognition of our own sin and this life of repentance. I mean, do we look at someone who struggles hard against sin and do we think to ourselves, man, like, they have a lot of issues. Or like, I'm glad I'm not that person. Or do we recognize that that struggle against sin is evidence of the Spirit's work in them? Like, I think when we look at those people, we, it should be convicting to us that, that maybe, like, we're, we're taking our sin too lightly. Maybe we're not thinking about our sin enough. In fact, I would argue that as we grow in spiritual maturity, in some ways that battle becomes more intense. Not because you sin more often, which hopefully is not the case, but because you are more aware of the subtlety of sin. You are more aware of your own heart. Not just the things that you do, but even your own desires and motivations. If you look in verse 17, Paul uses that word desires, and, and that word gets to the level of worship. Right? He's talking about idolatry um, or the heart. So not just what I do, but why I do it, my motives. And so I think as you grow as a Christian, the battle intensifies because you become even more aware of all of these things. And so we shouldn't be surprised at this battle that's going on. Rather, we should be prepared. Right? This is part of the Christian life. We should be thankful because it's evidence of the Spirit at work in us. And we should be confident I don't want to just give you the impression that the Christian life is all about sin, sin, sin. Like, it's always about my own sin, always about fighting sin. Look at what Paul says in verse 16. He says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. So notice what he says there. He says, how do you refrain from gratifying the desires of the flesh? Right? It's not with something negative. It's not with a prohibition. Right? Don't do this, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. What does he say? He says something positive. He says, you don't gratify the desires of the flesh. How? By walking by the Spirit. In fact, I think the way that Paul puts it communicates this sense of inevitability. If you walk by the Spirit, then you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. You are fighting a winning battle. That's what Paul is saying. That the Spirit will be victorious over the flesh. I think one of the ways that walking by the Spirit keeps us from gratifying the desires of the flesh is that the Spirit gives us new desires. Right? We, we possess new tastes coming from a new heart. It's that passage that I, I referenced earlier in Ezekiel. Right? Taken out of hearts of stone, given a new heart of flesh. New desires, new loves. Um, for example, I think of some of the junk food that I, I used to really enjoy when I was younger. Um, and so something's like, McDonald's dollar menu, instant ramen, um, certain candies, Laffy Taffy, <laughs> like airheads, fruit snacks, fruit roll-ups. I don't know. The list can go on and on, right? And, and nowadays, I don't crave. I don't, like, enjoy those things as much. Um, and why is that? Uh, sure, maybe because I'm old. <laughs> uh, but also because I'm taste, I've tasted much better foods, right? And, and I've tasted much better treats and desserts and things like that. And so someone didn't have to tell me, hey, like, stop eating those things. Like, don't stop eating the dollar menu um, because my taste had changed, right? And, and nowadays, I, I still enjoy it sometimes, but, like, I, some of that stuff is gross to me. And, it, like, it tastes artificial and it's, like, it makes me feel not good. Like, I'd rather have something better instead. And that's what the Spirit does for us. 
He transforms our desires. And slowly but surely, the law feels less burdensome and actually becomes something joyful. Why? Because it's no longer demanding of us something we had no desire to do in the first place. When our desires are changed, the law becomes this thing that guides us into how we can genuinely please the Lord. And so I think just one thing that means for us practically is that we need to spend time beholding that which is better, that which is more satisfying. We need to be tasting and seeing Jesus Christ. Like the hymn says, we need to be turning our eyes upon him so that all the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. As Pastor Tim has said, not just growing as sin experts and just staring at our sin and how bad it is and just like trying to understand our idolatry, but also Christ experts, knowing him better, seeing his beauty. Alongside the fierce battle against sin in the flesh, we are to be growing in how much we know the satisfaction and the beauty of Christ. And, and the great thing is that, that that is exactly what the Spirit wants to do. Like that is his ministry to highlight, to point us to Jesus Christ, to help us to enjoy and to glorify him more. All right, second point is this. Life in the Spirit bears fruit. Life in the Spirit bears fruit. Verse 22. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Uh, so in these verses, we get the well-known fruit of the Spirit. These are nine uh, like qualities or nine virtues that Paul says ought to characterize someone whose life is led by the Spirit. And we actually preached through these like one by one a couple years ago, um, although it was when we were meeting over Zoom because of COVID, and so, uh, which means you might have not been paying attention to the sermons, which I don't blame you, or you've erased that season from your memory already. Um, but since we did that study, uh, not too long ago. I'm not really going to focus on, on each of them individually, and you can listen to the recordings on the website. I'm going to talk about this more collectively. And on your notes, I did write down just the list and like a short definition, so I hope those can be helpful to you. Uh, but I think when we read these verses, the way that we might be tempted to read it is to see it as, okay, verses 19 to 21 is this list of bad things, this list of vices, then verses 22 to 23 is this corresponding list of virtues, right? Like, don't do verses 19 to 21, do verses 22 to 23. And I, I, that's not wrong. Um, we're definitely supposed to notice the contrast here, but I don't think that's all that Paul is trying to say here. Because if you think about his big point in Galatians, uh, he says that as Christians, we are no longer under the law, right? And so if we read these, these fruit, these virtues as rules, as just like two do's, then I think we're kind of missing the point. I mean, notice in verse 19, he says the works of the flesh, but then in verse 22, he doesn't say the works of the Spirit. He says the fruit of the Spirit. And I think he uses that specific imagery for, for a couple of reasons. Um, one is that we are to realize that fruit are a sign of life. Fruit are a sign of life. You might recognize that Paul isn't the only person in the Bible who uses this picture of fruit. That is actually a pretty common metaphor. Uh, for example, Jesus himself, in Matthew 7, he says that you will recognize a tree by its fruit. And sometimes the point of that metaphor is to warn, um, to challenge, to rebuke. Uh, that's how Jesus uses often. He says that your lack of good fruit, if you don't see any fruit, that should be a sign that there's a more serious problem. 
And so even for us as Christians, it's appropriate to do some self-examination, uh, to ask ourselves, is our faith evidenced by the fruit of good works, as James 2 talks about? But there's also another way that the Bible talks about fruit, and it's kind of a different emphasis. Um, fruit doesn't just expose deadness, but it's also evidence of life. Right? Fruit are a sign of life. For example, in John 15, Jesus gives the metaphor of the vine and the branches. And in that passage, he describes bearing fruit as just this byproduct of abiding in me. He says, if you abide in me, you will bear fruit. And so fruit is the evidence that we are in him and that he is in us. And I think we see both of those aspects here in our passage, but I think especially that second one when it comes to the fruit of the Spirit. That the fruit of the Spirit is the natural byproduct of the life of the Spirit in you. That's why it's called the fruit of the Spirit. The tree doesn't bear fruit because some law in nature says that it's supposed to. It bears fruit because that's just what it does when it's alive. And so it is with all of these virtues. If the Spirit is in you, that is if you are a Christian, right? Not if you're like some super spiritual person. If you are a Christian, if the Spirit is in you, then these things will naturally overflow in your life because of what he's doing in you. I hope that is encouraging for you because it's supposed to be. But here's something that might be a little more challenging. The fruit of the Spirit describe who you are, not what you do. The fruit of the Spirit describe who you are, not what you do. I mean, think about it. Couldn't Paul have copied and pasted verses 19 to 21 and just added the word don't in front of it? Right? Don't do this. Don't do this. Couldn't he have just given us a checklist of action items we could just mark off, right? Like, the, word, the fruit of the Spirit is read your Bible, serve at church, lead this Bible study, have this leadership role, do this for someone else. I mean, I think many of us would actually prefer that, right? Because it's like easier, it's faster, uh, it's more tangible. I think some of us might find more assurance in that. But Paul doesn't do that. And instead, he gives us qualities, right? He gives us words that describe someone's character and inner person. And so does love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, does that describe the kind of person that you are? Does that describe your heart? I think that might be convicting for some of us to hear because we instinctively point to the things that we do as indicators of how we're doing spiritually. And I'm not saying those things are like not significant, but Scripture does talk about how our external actions don't always reflect what's true of us on the inside. In 1 Corinthians 13, it's the famous um, love passage that's read at many weddings. Uh, in that passage, Paul says, I could speak in tongues of men and angels, that I could prophesy, I could understand all mysteries and knowledge. I could have so much faith so as to move mountains. But if I don't have love, right, if I don't have that fruit of the Spirit, I'm nothing. I'm just a noisy gong. I'm just a clanging symbol. I'm just making noise. It's meaningless. I want you to notice also that Paul calls it the fruit of the Spirit singular and not fruits plural, right? Some of you guys never noticed that. Now you do, and you're going to judge anyone who says fruits plural, <laughs> just like you judge when people refer to the Holy Spirit as it. But in some places, Paul has a list um, where he, he does use plural, where he does talk about gifts, right? Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, Romans 12. And in those lists, he talks about people have varying gifts. Some people have this gift. Some people have other gifts. 
Here, he doesn't do that. Right? It's singular, meaning all of these things, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, list goes on and on, all of these things should be showing up in your life. They're all related. Right? We're not like one person's meant to have love, another person is meant to have joy. Things like, it doesn't work like that. This is meant to character, all of these are meant to characterize your life. And I think this is important because some of you are naturally, for whatever reason, going to be better at some of these than others. Like maybe you're just naturally a more patient person, right? And praise God for that. I think we can learn from each other. But we have to be careful about picking and choosing and thinking that it's okay, okay if we're not so great at like self-control, for example, because we tell ourselves that oh, we got goodness, right? We got like faithfulness down. And so what are your natural personality traits and what are genuine spiritual fruit? Like what is actually the result of the Holy Spirit's work in you? And this challenges us towards this balanced growth in Christ-likeness. I think it might humble us to realize that we are really only as mature as our biggest area of immaturity. You're only as strong as your weakest link, so to speak. John Stott, he put it like this. He says, for it is together that they constitute Christ-likeness. To cultivate some without the other is to be a lopsided Christian. And the last thing I want to point out uh, is that we need to recognize that the fruit of the Spirit are expressed in community. Right? The fruit of the Spirit is developed, is demonstrated, is evidenced in relationships with one another. If you notice, our passage is bookended in verse 15 and verse 26 by these commands that have to do with how we treat other people. He says, don't bite and devour one another. Don't become conceited, provoking and envying one another. And this makes sense, doesn't it? Like, how do we show these things on our own? We are tested and we are taught how to love when we encounter those who are hard to love. Or we learn patience with people who push our buttons, who test our patience. We learn gentleness and self-control in those moments when other people provoke you. As one person put it, spiritual fruit is not manufactured in the pristine laboratory of our private prayer closet. It is cultivated in the soil of messy relationships. One more thought here. Fruit grow over time. Okay, fruit grow over time. And I feel like when we put it in terms of this metaphor, we're like, yeah, of course fruit grow over time. Right? That's just how it works. But when it comes to the Christian life, I think we don't remember that. We are often impatient when it comes to growth and when it comes to change. Like we get discouraged when it seems like we're not growing. Or we can grow prideful when it seems like other people aren't growing as fast as we hope that they would be. And those are both because we are impatient with spiritual growth. Do you realize that even the smallest degree of change, that that is evidence of the transforming power of the Spirit in you? And often, this takes place during your ordinary, everyday moments, which is why I think we don't notice this often, right, as much as we should. The Spirit is changing you and shaping you, not just in terms of, like, doing and practicing these things, but to become a different kind of person. And that takes time. And so, yeah, sure, I think sometimes when we evaluate our lives according to this verse, we look at the fruit of the Spirit, we should ask, you know, yes or no, right? Is this showing up in my life or is it not? I think sometimes a better question isn't yes or no, but before and after, right? Change and growth. What was I like before? How has God changed me since then? So Beacon, would you humbly and honestly consider your own life? Where have you seen growth? 
How has God changed you? In what ways are you different than you were before? And yet, where are you weak? Where do you know that you need to continue to grow? All right, last point here. This one's uh, shorter. Life in the Spirit is grounded in God's work, not yours. Life in the Spirit is grounded in God's work, not yours. And hopefully that idea has already been clear to you guys as we've been going through this. Um, but, but God is the one who enables. Right? God is the one who empowers the change in your life. God is the one who gives you victory in that struggle against the flesh. Like I said, the fruit of the Spirit are called that because it's the Spirit who produces that, right? that supernatural fruit day by day in your life. And as we get to these closing verses of chapter 5, Paul once again grounds our doing, our living the Christian life in what God has already done for us. Uh, verse 24, he says, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Verse 24 is the gospel, isn't it? Right? We belong to Jesus Christ. We've been crucified with him. And so we battle against sin. We strive to put to death the desires of the flesh, knowing that as Christians, we already belong to Jesus Christ, that we already have once and for all been crucified with him. Right, Galatians 2.20, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. That you are a new creation, and those sins presence might still remain while you're still here in the flesh. You have been set free from sin's penalty. You have been set free from sin's power. If you belong to Christ Jesus, it means that your approval and your acceptance doesn't depend on you. It means that it doesn't depend on how well you fight your sin, whether you succeed in your battle or whether you fail. If you belong to Christ Jesus, it means that your relationship with God is secure on the grounds of Christ's work on the cross. If you belong to Christ Jesus, you belong to him forever. And then in verse 25, Paul says, if we live by the Spirit, right, that objective reality, if we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Ongoing action, present experience. So living by the Spirit is walking by the Spirit. Right? And walking by the Spirit happens one step at a time as we keep in step with Him one day at a time. And like we said earlier, it's this pattern, right? this pattern of dependence, of trust, of struggling hard and faithfully against the flesh, of slowly but surely allowing the Spirit to bear real, genuine, supernatural fruit in your life, right? changing not just what you do but the kind of person that you are, it's this pattern of repentance, succeeding at times, but also stumbling at other times, and yet realizing that in those moments when you do fail, that you don't have to despair, because those are moments for you to turn again to Jesus Christ, right, to know more deeply the gospel, to preach it to yourself again, to behold the work of Jesus in new ways. And finally, verse 26, we'll end here. Paul says, let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Uh, it seems kind of random that Paul includes this verse here. Uh, like, what does he put this or these specific commands at this specific place? It doesn't seem like he was talking about this at all, right? Like, right before this. And I think this is why he does it. He recognizes that when we are not walking by the Spirit, when we start to, we start to think that it all depends on us, right? When we're living by the flesh and on our own strength, then we will look down on others who we feel aren't 
as far along as we are. Right? We'll look down on people who we feel like aren't as good or moral or holy as we are. We'll think to ourselves, oh, if only he or she just tried harder, if they worked harder, if they did what I did, right? Like it would go so much better for them. I'm here, why, that, why can't they be more like me? If you are not being led by the Spirit, if you're depending on your own strength, you will start taking credit for the good that's happened in you. And like I mentioned earlier, we will start looking at the wrong things to measure spiritual maturity. But if you're walking by the Spirit, right, in community together, that means that we are free to confess struggle to one another. We don't have to just talk about the good things that we do, but also the hard parts, the bad parts of us. We don't have to feel like we are in competition with one another spiritually. We can affirm and celebrate the genuine fruit that we see the Spirit producing in our own lives and in the lives of other people. We can rehearse and remember the gospel together. And that is the picture of a gospel, a spirit-led community. And so I hope one of the big takeaways from this message tonight is you just get a better picture of what it means to live as a Christian, right? as a Christian life, to be led by the Spirit. It's not spectacular. It's not you're just doing all these great things. You're struggling faithfully. You're bearing fruit day by day. And you're going back to the gospel, right? remembering that you have been crucified with Christ. And you live that gospel out each day and rehearse, rehearse that to one another. Let's pray. Father, thank you for um, just this word and uh, thank you for the Spirit, um, your gift to us, uh, who indwells our hearts, who ministers to us, uh, who battles against the flesh um, for us and who bears fruit in our lives. Thank you for the Spirit who reminds us of our identity in Jesus Christ and the finished work on the cross that he accomplished for us. Father, I do pray that you would grow each of us um, to be believers who don't depend on our own strength, but who do walk by the Spirit. And I do pray you would also grow us as a community um, who don't take pride in our own accomplishments, who don't value the wrong things, but who are humble with one another, who uh, don't envy or provoke or put each other down, who are not conceited, uh, but who are also led by the Spirit, uh, who point each other to Jesus Christ and to the gospel. And so give us uh, just a vision for that kind of life, Lord, and, and help us to pursue that um, each day as we walk according to the Spirit. Thank you, God, for just this time together. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.